your conversations with your disciples after you rose from the dead and before you ascended to the right hand of the Father. God, I pray that they would be more than just uh, cool, informative, curious stories. But God, I pray that each of us would encounter the living God uh, this morning um, in new ways, that we'd be reminded of your character, be reminded of your promises, be reminded of your faithfulness. And God, I pray that um, by those reminders that you would just quiet uh, any doubts and fears that we would have, that you would strengthen our faith and that you'd, you'd give us an increasing resolve to, um, to fulfill um, our purpose and calling um, in our time on this earth. So God, would you be glorified? Would you uh, speak? Um, um, let me just be your mouthpiece this morning. God, allow me to stand behind your word, not in front of it. Pray that you'd be glorified and these dear ones would be edified. We pray all these things in the risen name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And God's people said, amen. So as, as Pat shared with you, we're taking a, um, a break. Um, as he said in the first service, a short deviation, which I thought he was talking about me, a short, uh, uh, whatever the word is. Um, but yeah, so we're, I'm excited. This has been really good for my heart. Um, I, I've not, we've not done this before. I've not, um, um, I've just, this has been good for my heart because I feel like we just, we jump into Easter. We, there's a lot to contemplate, a lot to celebrate, and then we just move past it. And so, um, so we're going to marinate in it for a couple more weeks, uh, this Sunday and then next Sunday. And um, we're going to be looking at uh, John chapter 20, verse 19, through John chapter 21, verse 13, or verse 14, excuse me. And we're going to be looking at Jesus' conversations and his words to his disciples. And he appears to them three different times. And um, in naming this sermon, Fear, Faith, and Fishing, um, it's, uh, um, my prayer is that you'll be spurred on, that you would allow God's word this morning, not my words, but God's word, actually um, uh, look into your heart and show you if you have any fears uh, or doubts uh, that are keeping you from full faith and living on mission. Now, I was just thinking, I don't, I don't have, I'm not, I don't think of myself as a fearful person. Um, I think people are afraid of me, um, but I don't uh, see myself as a fearful person typically. Um, but oftentimes, um, in light of God's Word, when God's Word um, shines into my heart, it does reveal certain fears that shape my attitudes and my actions. In God's Word, we see His promises, we see His character, and we get reminders of His faithfulness over the generations. And it's when I marinate in these truths of who God is and who, uh, who God see, how God sees me, it's when I, when I marinate in those truths, my faith is strengthened and my fears are calmed. And it actually frees me and motivates me to live my life for His glory rather than my own glory, which is what um, I want to do in my flesh. I want to ask you this morning, do you have fears that paralyze you? Do you have fears? I already know you have fears. We all do. If you don't now, you will tomorrow. But do you have fears and doubts that paralyze you? Where, where it, maybe it informs your actions and your thoughts in ways that are not in line with what God wants you to do. And these are fears and doubts 
that stem from an unbelief in who God says He is, what His promises are, and His faithfulness. Do you believe that God is loving? Do you believe that God is good? Do you believe that He is faithful? Do you believe that God desires to walk with you every step of the way? Furthermore, do you believe that He's never surprised? He's never taken back by your doubt or fears. He's never shaken His finger at you when you do doubt or fear. And He will patiently quiet those fears as you lean into Him. Do you know that? If you'd open up your Bibles to John chapter 20, we're going to be um, starting in verse 19. And before we get there, I want to just um, remind you what's transpired so far um, this side of the, of the resurrection. He, appear, he appeared to Mary Magdalene. Mary was a woman who had, was possessed by seven demons. Uh, she knew oppression. And uh, she uh, and other women followed Jesus and the apostles, were with them uh, through, for the many years of Jesus' ministry, the three years of Jesus' ministry. And she actually provided for his ministry. We don't know how. Uh, this Mary Magdalene also was at the cross when Jesus was crucified. So she saw him bloodied and hanging there. She stuck around and saw where he was buried. And then finally she went back to the tomb where Jesus revealed himself to her while she was weeping. And then we saw last week that after that, Jesus appeared to two travelers who were leaving the Passover celebration in Jerusalem and headed towards their hometown of Emmaus. And along the way, Jesus showed up while they were walking and He revealed Himself um, through the Word, but they didn't understand that it was Him. Until they got to their house, He broke the bread at dinner, He blessed it, and He gave it to them. And it symbolizes that Jesus gave himself for their sins and he gave himself to them for a relationship with him and their eyes were opened and they knew it was the Lord and he disappeared. And that's where we find ourselves today. And I want to give you just maybe a little, uh, one more bit of context and it's from Mark 15. You don't, need to, you don't need to turn there. But the guards who were guarding the tomb went back to the religious leaders and said that there was an earthquake, the stone was rolled away, and Jesus is now missing. And what the religious authorities told the guards, they fabricated a story, and they said, we want you to tell everybody that Jesus' body was stolen, and we'll pay you for that. That lie that was fabricated then has carried forth through the generations, especially amongst the Jewish people today. They still believe that lie. And meanwhile, back at the ranch in Jerusalem, Jesus' disciples were together listening to the testimonies of the two travelers. After Jesus appeared to them in Emmaus and he left, they left and they went back to Jerusalem. And, uh, and they, they showed up at the disciples' room. I don't know if it's a house, apartment, whatever it was. Um, they showed up there and they were testifying to the disciples everything that Jesus said and everything that they saw Jesus do. And it says, in this room, in verse 19, chapter 20, the doors were locked because they feared the Jews. Jesus had either been stolen or he had been, or he'd, or he'd risen from the dead. Jesus' closest friends and followers would be uh, uh, at the house, um, had no idea. They weren't 100% sure if Jesus was dead or if he was alive. But either way, they knew that the authorities would find them as they're looking for Jesus. 
And so here we are in this room, um, locked doors, uh, behind uh, closed doors and locked doors, and Jesus suddenly appears to the disciples. And he has four words. First thing he says, peace be with you. Not sure how he appeared. Although the account in Luke, the account that Luke gives to this, he says that the disciples um, were startled and terrified thinking they saw a ghost. I love it that Jesus made his entry with peace be with you. Not get a grip. Not why are you hiding? Not why are you fearful? Not cowards. Not boo, which is something I might have done. But peace be with you. You see, Jesus saw his disciples. Jesus knew his disciples then. He knows his disciples now. He knew the disciples were fearful of the authorities. He knew that they were confused about whether Jesus was dead or alive. And furthermore, he knew they would be terrified when he walked through that wall. Now, I was just thinking about um, a couple of stories um, that has happened in my life that reminds, reminds me of this phrase, peace be with you, and how calming it is to hear that. Um, my two boys, Mitch and Joey, would go snowboarding. I think Mitch might have been in high school and Joey was in junior high, I don't know. But, but um, two times, I think in the same year, I got the same phone call from the same son about 3 o'clock in the afternoon. Hey, Dad, Joey's getting taken down the slope in a toboggan. Next call, hey, Dad, it's Mitch. Joey's getting casted right now for a broken arm. The third time, or if he was to call again, what I would hope he would say before he said anything is, hey, Dad, everything's okay. Peace be with you. We were with my parents a few weeks ago in Mexico, and um, I've done a lot of harm to my parents over the years, as a lot of kids have to their parents. And I've been resolved now for a few years to actually um, sit down with my parents, acknowledge the ways that I've hurt them and sinned against them over the years, everything that I could think of. My parents don't know Jesus. My parents are getting old. And I want to, uh, as far as it depends upon me, the Scripture says, I want to live at peace with everyone, particularly those who are closest with me. And so, here we are in Mexico for seven days, was planning on doing it every day. Here we are on the last night, finally got the courage to do it. Nancy threatened my life. And I said, hey, we're going to dinner. I said, hey, Mom and Dad, um, Nancy and I have something we want to share with you. And the first thing I said is, we're not getting divorced, and I don't have cancer. I wanted them to know that whatever it is that I was going to be talking to them about, that it wasn't like I wanted to, I wanted to bring them peace so they can relax and know that it's nothing, um, nothing that they had done and I'm not, I'm not going to die. After Jesus said, peace be with you, he showed them the wounds in his hands, his feet, and his side from the crucifixion. And all the passage says after that is that the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. They, know it, they knew it was Him. And this wasn't just a, oh, yippee, Jesus is alive. I'm picturing celebration, high-fiving, dancing around, hugging tears. 
Then after that celebration, a silence probably came over them as Jesus spoke again. And the next thing he said was peace to you. And this peace to you was going to be followed with marching orders of a commissioning that they could not, they could not fulfill this mission on their own. So he told them ahead of time, peace to you. And then he said in verse 21, as the Father sent me, I also send you. He's getting right down to business. This is a repeat. These words, as the Father sent me, I also send you. This is a repeat of what he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane the night before he was betrayed a week earlier. He prayed this thing, and now he's actually saying it to the disciples. And if you would like to, it should be on the screen. Turn back a couple of chapters to John 17 as we get an upfront and personal look at Jesus praying to the Father on the night that he was betrayed. He says, but now I'm coming to you, Father, and these things I speak in the world that they, who's they, the disciples, the followers of Jesus throughout all time, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. And is there any greater joy than knowing Jesus? Verse 14, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I don't ask that you take them out of the world because they're hated and they're going to be persecuted, but that you keep them from the evil one. They, my disciples, are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is the truth. What he's saying is make them like me through your word. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they may also be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are one in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. So he commissions them. And the next thing he does is he breathes on them and he says, receive the Holy Spirit. Now, God's word is comical at times. It's true, but it's okay to laugh. And, and as you look at um, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, these are all eyewitness reporters that are reporting different aspects of what they saw. And what John reported is that Jesus showed up and said, peace be with you. He showed them um, his hands and his feet and his side, and they rejoiced that it was Jesus. And he said, peace be to you again, and then he commissioned him. As the Father sent me, I send you. In Luke's account, in chapter 24, it says that Jesus showed him the hands, the feet, the side, and Jesus said, get me some fish. Because he wanted to show them that he was fish and blood. He was fish and blood. He was flesh and blood, flesh and bones. So, so Luke, and both of them are accurate. Not one, they're not like different accounts. It's, that, it's like any reporter. You've got ten reporters um, watching the, the Rockies get schooled by the Diamondbacks, and they're going to report different aspects of that. But what Luke says is that, um, that Jesus ate fish, and John says that he breathed on them. That's funny. That's actually, I mean, like, I, I'm hoping that he took a 
certs or something. Jesus could have bad breath. Just saying. He breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. It seems to me that they did not necessarily receive the Holy Spirit at that moment. And here's how I, here's how I come to that conclusion. Because in Acts chapter 1, after Jesus ascended, the day of Pentecost is when the Holy Spirit ascended upon the disciples. So I think what's happening here is that Jesus is giving them assurance that the Spirit of God would be with them when He finally uh, goes, once, uh, goes um, for good until He comes back a second time. He gives them assurance. In verse 23, He says this, If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is, with, it is withheld. This is what they're being called to do. This is what they're being sent out to do. And what does this sound like to you? Anybody else uh, raised in a church where a man would absolve your sins? A few of you? Yeah, so I grew up in a church where, um, where I knew I was a sinner because everybody told me I was a sinner. And then um, I would go um, to this um, sterile, whitewashed church with all kinds of uh, uh, pictures and statues all over, and I would limp into a dark closet, and as soon as I shut the door, um, a screen would open, and I would see a shadow on the other side that looked like Darth Vader, and that what I would have to say is, bless me, Father, for I have sinned. It's been whatever, two weeks, three weeks, four months, five years since I have um, confessed my sins to you. And then he would say, Three Hail Marys. He says, okay, you leave, do three Hail Marys, two Our Fathers, um, four burpees, and, um, and you're forgiven. I did the burpees, and I didn't do the other stuff. The idea here, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, from any, it is withheld. The idea here is not for any human or human institution to forgive or not forgive others. You see, no church, no person in the church has the ability or the authority to forgive the sins of others. Jesus is saying this. He's saying that as the church proclaims the gospel, the church is you and I, as the church proclaims the gospel message of forgiveness, as the church proclaims the gospel of forgiveness through, by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, sins will be forgiven. If there's no faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ, there's no forgiveness of sins. He said, as the Father sent me, I'm sending you. And that's the message that you're going to preach and proclaim until I come back again to judge the living and the dead. So the disciples' fears have been quieted. Their faith has been renewed and strengthened. And their mission and purpose are starting to take shape. They still don't understand it. In verse 24, chapter 20, Now Thomas, one of the twelve called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But Thomas said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. We have a granddaughter, Lydia, that will go to the rec center. She's big enough to go down that slide now. We'll go, Lydia, you want to go down that slide with Papa? 
She goes, I will never go down that slide and you can't make me. And that's what Thomas is saying here. I will never believe until I see it. And let me give you a little bit of, a little information about Thomas. When you think of Thomas, how do we describe him? Anybody? Doubting Thomas. And I want to tell you that Thomas has a bad rap. He has a bad rap. Um, one time that we know of, he doubted. And I'm glad that, uh, that um, those type of things will get hung on me. Um, there's old angry Dan again. Uh, there's old lustful Dan again. There's old um, whatever Dan again. So let's take a little bit, of, uh, a little bit about Thomas. Um, none of the others, first of all, none of the other disciples believed that Jesus was alive until they encountered him. He's no different than anybody else. They had to see his hands. They had to see his feet. They had to eat with him. They had to touch his wounds. But these disciples who have seen Jesus alive tried to convince Thomas, but Thomas wanted to see and feel for himself. Let me tell you a little bit about Thomas. John chapter 14. You see, Thomas is one of those people, maybe you know somebody like this, where they're just not going to take your word for it. And when they take your word for it, when they trust you, they're going to follow you till the ends of the earth. Um, he is not a, um, he wants to believe. John 14, let me read this. This is Jesus' words. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, Jesus says. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. And Jesus goes on to say, and you know the way to where I'm going. And the disciples, I just picture them, go, just, yeah. Now, not really having any idea what Jesus is talking about, but they don't want to question him. Thomas wants to know. And here's what Thomas said in verse 5. Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? That is an honest question. That's the same type of questions that God wants us to ask. God knows we're going to have doubts. God knows we're going to have fears. And if we, have, if we have doubts and fears with a posture of really wanting to know and believe, He's going to honor that. And Jesus said this to Thomas. I've never seen this before. He said it to Thomas, not to the other disciples. He's answering Thomas. He says, I am the way. I am the truth and the life. No one, no one comes to the Father but through me. Thomas really wanted to know the way, and he wanted to believe everything about Jesus. He had already believed Jesus. He trusted Jesus with his life. He gave Jesus his heart and his hope. And that belief and that hope cannot rest in a dead man. He said, I've given three years of my life. I love Jesus. But if he's dead, I'm done. He said, before I can take another step in believing Jesus was alive, which meant for Thomas following him and giving up everything he needed to know for sure. He didn't want it to just be another rumor only to be burnt and disappointed again. So for you and I, for Thomas, the question, the question of whether Jesus rose again from the dead is paramount to our faith. 
Paul says in, in, in 1 Corinthians 15, if Jesus didn't raise from the dead, our faith is in vain. And we're still in our sins. We might as well go to a man and have a man try to uh, uh, absolve us of our sins. If Jesus is still dead, our faith is in vain and we're still in our sins. So a week after Jesus appeared to the disciples without Thomas, they were apparently still fearful of the Jewish leaders and they were meeting still behind closed doors with their tail tucked between their legs. John 20, 26 through 27. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came in and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Not why are you still fearing, what are you afraid of now? But a simple, peace be with you. You see, the disciples still didn't know what God was calling them to do. It had been a full week since Jesus appeared to the others, but Thomas has had another week to wonder and worry, is Jesus alive? And then in verse 27, he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands. Put your hand into the place in my side. Do not disbelieve. Do not be faithless, but believe. And I love Thomas's simple, profound response. And, and I actually don't think that Thomas actually put his hand in the finger. It doesn't tell us that. Didn't, didn't put his finger into the hand or the side. Just seeing Jesus and seeing the wounds was enough for Thomas to respond, my Lord and my God. Not only did he acclaim Jesus as Lord, which was a title reserved for Caesar in that century, but he acclaimed, as, acclaimed him as God, the highest praise that, be, that could be given to Jesus that echoes the opening statement of, God, of John's gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, Jesus and the Word was God. Verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And Jesus said to him in verse 29, Have you believed because you've seen me? Have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And we didn't hear Thomas' response. We couldn't get into his head to even hear what he's thinking. When Jesus asked him, have you believed because you've seen me? I think Thomas was thinking or he said, yes. I needed that. Thank you. And Jesus isn't rebuking Thomas here. He's blessing us. John, the author, who wrote this beautiful letter, takes this opportunity to tell us in the next two verses what the purpose is of this entire letter. In other words, what happens to Thomas here is exactly what John hopes will happen to each one of us when we read the book of John, when we read um, the entirety of God's Word. Listen to this, John 20, 30-31. We're not going to see Jesus in the flesh. We're going to see Him when He comes back again or when we die first. But listen to this, verse 30. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. 
day. But these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life and have life in his name. That the Bible, the book of John, that everything that we're reading about was written for you and I today so that we might believe in the risen Christ, the Messiah, and not only believe in him, but have life now in his name. Fear can cause doubt and unbelief. And the remedy, if you are in fear and unbelief right now, if you're not believing God's promises, if you're not believing God's character, if you're not believing in God's faithfulness, I can tell you right now, he is not up there shaking his finger. He is standing there saying, peace be with you. And then he is gently driving you to his word. Because the only place that you're going to have your fears and doubts calmed is by the living and active Word of God to be reminded. So what the enemy wants you to do when you're fearing and doubting, he wants you to spin around in that fear and doubt. And God says, peace be with you. And you open the Word. You acknowledge to God that, God, I'm fearful and I'm doubtful. I believe Please help my unbelief. And then we're going to wrap it up in the first part of chapter 21. Uh, are we going to do that? Yeah, we're going to do that. So Jesus' disciples finally left Jerusalem. They finally unlocked the door. They went out into Jerusalem. They went 70 miles north to the Sea of Galilee, which they knew very well. It was their stomping grounds. They were fishermen. And it's on this familiar lake that Jesus is going to reveal himself to his disciples for the third time. And there's a couple of brilliant object lessons that will help calm your fears, increase your faith, and spur you on to fulfill your mission. In John 21, verse 2, it says, Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. These were fishermen by trade. They met Jesus at this lake three years earlier. And I'm just going to read a part of Luke chapter 5 and give you an account when they first met Jesus. Jesus was on the shore of the Lake of Galilee, and he was preaching. He was sharing the, the Word of God. And the crowds were pressing in on him. And so he saw a boat. He got onto the boat, and the boat cast out about 10, 15 feet. So he had a floating pulpit so that he could speak the Word of God without the crowd pressing in. And when he finished speaking, verse 4, chapter 5 of Luke, he said to Simon Peter, put out the net into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon Peter answered, Master, we've toiled all night and we've took in nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and saw it. And he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I'm a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were there with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken in. And so also were James, John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. 
from now on you'll be catching men. Verse 11, and when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and they followed him. Fast forward to John chapter 21, three years later. Peter and John and the five others are on the beach, the Sea of Galilee. They're reminiscing everything that's just happened the last three years. The horrors of what just happened in Passover week. That Jesus was hanging there. He was beaten and bloodied. He died and he was buried. And then he victoriously rose again from the dead. Jesus is truly their Lord and God. But what does that mean for these guys? Are we going to see Jesus again? What is our purpose? And all of a sudden, as the sun is setting out of the blue, Peter stands up and says, let's go fishing. He says, I'm going fishing. And they said to him, we will go with you. We went out. They went out. They got into the boat. But that night, they caught nothing. These are professional fishermen. Um, I catch nothing. Professional fishermen catch fish every time. Um, It's not that they're out there with power bait. They've got nets, and this is what they do. They fished all night. They caught nothing. John 21, 4 through 5. Just as day was breaking, it was morning, The sun was starting to rise. Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to them, Children, do you have any fish? Now, fishermen are notorious for fish stories, are they not? You always catch more and bigger fish than they really did. Or if you're like me, if I'm in a place where I finally can catch a fish, and somebody asks me how the fishing is, I just say it's horrible. You should go down to the Dead Sea and try your luck there. But these men had no reason to shade the truth, and they answered back simply, no, not catching any fish. Here they are, long, long night of fishing, no catch. They didn't know if or when they would see their leader again. And now some distant onlooker is reminding them that they don't have any fish. And Jesus said to them, verse 6, cast the net to the right side of the boat and you'll find some. So they cast it, and now they're not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. Deja vu. The light goes on for the apostle John. In verse 7, the disciple whom Jesus loved, that's what John calls himself, said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and he threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far off from the land, about 100 yards off. I've got a couple of questions for Peter. You've got to love Peter's passion. He was stripped for work. The Greek literally means naked. I don't know if he's naked or if he had underwear on, but they're fishing, all of them that way. Now I want to ask him, Peter, were you naked? And then he puts his outer garment on, which is heavy. Did you think you'd swim better? 
If you had your underwear on for your friends, couldn't you have it on for Jesus? And then did you, did you really think you could arrive? You were 100 yards out. Can you swim? And did you think you would arrive faster than the boat to shore? Do you ever make a list of what you're going to ask people when you, get to, when you get to heaven? That's just one of them. Yeah, I don't even know what underwear looked like back then. Chapter, nine, or chapter 21, verses 9 through 13, and we'll finish on these verses. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish on it and bread. And we're going to talk more about this charcoal fire next week because it's very significant. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And if you want to, like, uh, do some gymnastics to figure out what that 153 means, have at it and shoot me an email. Um, I don't think it's all that significant to the passage. And although, although there were not so many, the net, although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew who he was. They knew he was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. The sea in the Bible oftentimes depicts um, life for uh, humanity. That's the, the sea is a picture of life. And life like the sea is unpredictable and scary at times. Would you agree with that? This is a beautiful picture of Jesus seeing the disciples, directing the disciples, and that he's waiting for the disciples. Jesus is on the firm shore of eternity. He's not sleeping. He's not wringing his hands. He's not worrying. He knows them and he knows you by name. He saw them and he sees you. He was directing their every step and he will direct you. He was waiting for them and he is waiting for you and I. Jesus is watching and directing. He is on the beach. In the increasing light of dawn, the sun is coming up. And yes, he is interested in. Yes, he, is, he cares about. Yes, he is directing. And finally, he will crown us with his blessing for our, our obedient work as his servants as we toil on the restless seas of life. And I believe that Jesus allowed them not to catch any fish on their own so that they would have complete reliance upon Him alone. You see, even in our evangelism, even in our proclamation, um, we can't save anybody. And we need to continue to ask the question, God, what are you doing and how do you want us to respond? Jesus comes along and says, hey, cast it over to the right side and you'll find what you're looking for. Next is, is that we get to participate in God's work. We get to participate in what he's been doing from the beginning, fishing, seeking and saving the lost. You see, the fish on the charcoal fire, I believe, is a picture of all those who have been caught and saved by grace through faith throughout the centuries that are awaiting us. And Jesus says to Peter, and he's going to say to us, bring in your haul. And when Peter brought in the fish, 
There were many, and the net was not torn. That should calm your fears. It's God's work. He'll tell you where to cast the net. And if anybody is truly his, your kids, your parents, your spouse, not a one of them will be lost. The net will not tear. And finally, Jesus is waiting. He says, come and have breakfast. He says that to worn out disciples who are tired. At the beginning of the Bible, God's people, Adam and Eve, are free to eat from all the trees except in Eden except one. At the end of the Bible, God's people, the church, you and I, are once again invited to eat with Jesus in the wedding feast. And you know what we're going to eat? I don't either. But I bet it's going to be a lot of beef and pork. And we're, the, the best thing is we'll be seated at the table with our risen Christ. Fear, faith, and fishing. Whether we know it or not, we've all got doubts and fears occasionally. And I want to just, I want you to have the picture of Jesus saying, peace be with you. Not wagging his finger. And he's, he's beckoning you to taste and see that he's good. That we can stand in his promises. That his character is good and loving and steadfast. And he's faithful. And even though we are on the sea of life, and at times the wind and the current are unpredictable, and sometimes it's just too much to handle, he is on the shore watching you, directing your every step, and he's waiting for you to one day say, well done, good and faithful servant. Let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, your word. <laughs> it, is, uh, it is so living and active. And God, it just blows me away that how many times we can read through a certain passage and because it is living and it's active, that, um, that you just reveal new truths. Uh, we know that your word is the truth, but we know that we have uh, limited understanding. And I just thank you, God, for how um, your word um, on every page uh, reminds us of your promises. 